Before I even read my verse, I want to say this one little thing about how the enemy tries to screw this message up. We're going to talk about the nature of sin. We need to hear this. And the nature of repentance, we need to hear this. The need to reconsecrate ourselves to God. The enemy always, is he not, trying to put a spin on truth, trying to color our hearing of truth or our thinking of truth so that it, isn't, it brings about harm instead of good. So here's one strategy he often uses whenever you talk about holiness, the need for holiness, the need for consecration, the need to move away from sin, is that sometimes to some people who have a tendency in this direction anyways, the enemy puts a spin where it gets heard as saying, we need to get more, more compulsive about doing rules. Holiness for some people, as the enemy puts a spin on it, is a sort of anal activity where you just get compulsive about rules, and the more rules, and the more detailed the rules, the more, the more holy, you, holy you are. As though it's kind of some kind of a point system. And God becomes this omni-compulsive deity with all of these details, and holiness is a matter of trying to figure out all the details and do it, and people go nuts, and there's no joy, there's no power, there's no victory in that. I'm not talking about that here this morning, okay? You got that? I'm not talking about that. Like, oh, maybe we should, you know, we, we got to go on some kind of search to find it. We go, you know, 56 miles an hour instead of 55. You need, you know, some, some, some perspective on this. So often when people get involved into the, the, the compulsive uh, definition of holiness, they major in the minors. They become obsessed with all these little things. What do I do? What don't I do? And they miss the majors. They walk around with attitudes and, and uh, worldviews that are totally inconsistent with who God is. God's calling us, I believe, to be a holy people. In joy and in victory and in power. But that's mostly about following the word of God as God has revealed his heart to us and being transformed by the renewing of our mind, having our attitudes, having our hearts changed. The details take care of themselves if you have a heart that's centered on God. Just know that. Now here's what I am getting at this morning. I believe God is calling us individually and calling us as a whole church here this morning, now in the next 25 minutes, to reconsecrate our lives to God. Many of you did this yesterday or last week. You repented of some individual things. That's good. Uh, this morning, I'm talking about a congregation as a whole. God's calling us to reconsecrate ourselves before him. What is really clear is this. All the blessing that God has for you individually, in terms of your life, the joy, the, 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 the quality of your life in God, and all the ways that God wants to use you to bless other people, the ministry that you have, the one and only thing that will keep that from happening to the extent that God would like it to happen is sin in our life. Hanging on to things that God does not want to be there. All of them are clogs in the faucet of God's Holy Spirit flowing in our life. He wants to just pour out his love and his joy and his peace and his power and use us to bless our families and to bless our neighborhood and to bless the church and to bless other churches and to grow and to build the kingdom of God. He has got incredible plans for each one of you, for you to prosper and be blessed and to bless others. The one thing that keeps that from happening is when we have things in our heart and in our mind and in our life and in our behaviors that ought not to be there. And we know it, but we hang on to them. It's called sin. And God wants us as a congregation this morning to have a time where we reconsecrate ourselves to turn from that and turn towards God. Let me get into the particular word that God has for us here this morning. And I want to warn you. I'm feeling particularly bold, and I don't know why. But just really, uh, 
you know, uh, it's the old, there's a verse in First Timothy that says that he'll anoint you to speak as the oracles of God, and that's how it feels this morning. did first service too. It's like, whoa. Uh, it's taking me by surprise, but just be forewarned. But do you want to hear what God has to say? Uh, you know, do you want to hear that? Do you want to hear it straight? Okay, praise God. Then you're going to hear it. Second Kings chapter 22, listen to this. Here's the story behind the verse. Israel in the 7th century, actually Judah in the 7th century, had backslidden from God. They'd had three kings that did not follow God. And because the leadership suffered, the people suffered. That always happens. When you have leaders who don't follow God, there are the people under that leadership, uh, in the end, suffer accordingly. And Israel and Judah as a whole had backslidden. They had lost their vision for God, their passion for God. A lot of the Levitical priesthood had gotten corrupted. They were following pagan religions, setting up pagan idols, worshiping pagan gods. And the temple had fallen into disarray. They had a taxation in the Old Testament called the tithes. Some of you have heard about that. Well, that was their taxation, part of their taxation, and it would support the temple. But the government, apparently, and the, Le the Levitical priesthood had gotten so corrupt, they weren't using the money from the people to keep, to maintain the temple. So bad had things gotten that. The copy of the law, the five books of Moses, that was to be kept in the temple had gotten lost. And apparently no one even noticed it. It was to be a regular part of the life of Israel that the law would be read to the people. Most people couldn't read, and there weren't like a lot of copies floating around. No printing presses in these days. And it was supposed to be read on a regular basis so the people would know what God's will is for their life, but it stopped being read for so long that now they had actually lost it, and no one even noticed. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Well, Josiah, a godly king, came along. Who didn't care about popular opinion because it wasn't popular to be godly at this time. He cared about doing God's will. And so he called for the temple to be reconstructed and to begin to move in the direction of doing the things that God wanted us to do. In the process of redoing the temple, they found the book of the law. And his high priest, who was a godly man named Hilkiah, found it and said this, verse 8 of chapter 22, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. If you look down in verse 11. And it came about when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. That's an ancient Semitic way of repenting. He was so grieved when he read what God's will was that he rent his clothing. He repented. Throughout this chapter, then the Lord says that because of Israel's disobedience, Judah's disobedience, he's going to bring judgment on Judah. But to all who will repent in the light of the hearing of the word... Uh, he would bring blessing. And so if you look at verse, chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, Then the king, Josiah, the godly one, sent, and they gathered to him all the elders in the, uh, of Judea and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both great and small, kids, older, whatever, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king Josiah stood by the pillar of the temple and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to carry out the words of his covenant that were written in the book. And all the people 
all the people entered into the covenant with Josiah at that time. The rest of the chapter is them responding to the covenant they made with the Lord. They got rid of the pagan temples, got rid of the pagan gods, threw out the, the, the idolatrous priests who weren't following the way of God. They reformed the theology of Judah, the religion of Judah, and it brought revival in this land. This is a prophetic word that was given to me for Woodland Hills about two months ago that I think is true, and that is that God wants to use, is already in fact using Woodland Hills Church to go way beyond the parameters of Woodland Hills Church and be a catalyst of revival for the church in St. Paul and even in the Twin Cities and maybe beyond. That will happen to the extent that we are yielded as a congregation to God. That we are together saying yes to what God says yes to and no to what God says no to. I'm going to talk for 15 minutes and then we're going to do that for everyone who has a heart to do that. Pray with me here. Father... Let it come alive. Let your word land. Give us conviction, Lord God. I pray against every stronghold of our culture that would cause us to legitimize, rationalize, equivocate on sin. Lord God, I also pray for protection for minds that can get wounded because this reminds them of things they've heard in the past that have not been said out of love. Lord God, let your word be said straight. Let it be said bold. And let it be, said, uh, and let it be heard correctly, Lord God. Most of all, Lord God, convict us, change us, move us to be the people that you want us to be. Give us a heart that is your heart and a mind that is your heart, mind, and a soul that is your soul, Lord God, that would hunger and pant up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If there's a person who decides to defy the law of gravity and they step off of a 19-story skyscraper, what happens to them? They become a splat on the ground, do they not? They are at least harmed, maybe they're killed. If there's a person who decides to defy the law of physics and drive their 90-mile-an-hour uh, Mercedes into a pole, what happens to them? Physics wins. Uh, they are at least harmed, if not killed, by ignoring the law of physics. <clears throat> if there's a person who decides to ignore the laws of nutrition and they go a year without eating, or however long, They're going to be at least harmed. They're certainly going to be very skinny. They may die. You can't ignore the law of gravity without bringing harm to yourself, and you can't ignore any laws of physics without bringing harm to yourself, and you can't ignore the laws of nutrition without bringing harm to yourself. But what happens to a person who ignores, let's say, for example, the law that says you shall have no gods before the one true God, the law that says you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all your mind and all your body and all your soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, or the law that says you shall walk right before God. Or the law that says that sex is for marriage between a husband and a wife. What happens if someone ignores those laws? I want to submit to you that the consequence is exactly the same as it is when you ignore physical laws. God has set up the universe such that it operates orderly. If he wants to have a universe where you have more free moral agents who make important decisions like human beings, there's got to be an order and structure to things. You can't have gravity working sometimes and not others, physics working sometimes and not others. There's a law, there are laws that govern the nature of things. And it is exactly the same in the spirit realm. It's exactly the same with regard to our moral natures. We are physical beings and we are also spiritual beings. Physically, we understand 
that there are laws that we need to adhere to. They apply to all people at all times. And if you ignore them or try to go against them, you're going to be in trouble. But we're also spiritual beings. And what we need to understand is that the exact same thing is true in a spiritual realm. God is a moral God, has a perfectly good character to him, and that sets up a moral structure to the nature of things. And when people go against that, when people live in contradiction to that, they do it and inevitably, inevitably bring some destruction upon themselves. The trouble is this, is that in our culture, and maybe it's just part of the natural fallen mind, it's so easy to see the reality of the consequences of violating the physical laws, but it's very easy also to ignore the consequences of violating the spiritual laws. So when it comes to the spiritual laws, what we have is a culture that says something like this. The law of gravity applies to all people at all times, but the law of sexual ethics does not. In fact, this is, I believe, I, I believe this is probably one of the most, if not the most, major diabolical lies that permeates the thinking of our culture. And we as believers who want to walk right with God have got to be very aware of it. It's a philosophy, as I mentioned it last week, is called relativism. And what it in essence says is this. What is right and what is wrong is relative to the individual, or maybe it's relative to the culture, but it's certainly not an absolute thing. You decide for yourself what is right, what is wrong. That's kind of up to your own preferences. Some people like chocolate ice cream. Some people like vanilla. Uh, some people like heterosexual relationships. Some people like homosexual relationships. It's all up for grabs. It's up to your preference. You decide. You decide what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. It's up to you. It's called relativism. It's relative to the individual. What we need to understand here is this, that this is, this is a replica of the lie that was told in the Garden of Eden. This permeates, it, it saturates, even a lot of thinking of the church. It, it saturates the TV, it saturates movie theaters, it saturates the songs, it saturates the media, it saturates the culture, and it dictates the, the, the educational system. It's all over the place. And it is nothing more or less than a replica of the lie that was told in Genesis chapter 3. When the enemy convinced... Adam and Eve, that it was a good thing to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that basically means is this. That promised them, they thought that by eating that tree, it promised them the ability and the right to define for themselves what is good and what is evil. That's up to them to decide. The root of all sin is moral autonomy. When you decide that, that you have more rights than the creator, if you still believe in a creator. When you decide that you are God and not God, that is the root of all sin, it's the root of all evil. And you are now going against everything, the very nature of the way God set things up. Health can be defined as congruity with the natural law. You are healthy when you are consistent with the natural, when your body's in harmony with the way things are supposed to, to, to uh, operate. You are sick, you are literally diseased to the extent that your body is out of harmony with the way things are set up physically. The word disease means dis at ease. You are not in harmony, you're in contradiction. But the exact same thing is true on a spiritual level. Health or holiness is nothing more or less than being consistent with the way God set up the world, with God's character, with your, your living and your thinking and your feeling and your breathing in a way that is consistent, congruent with, with who God is. Sin is living to the extent that you're not consistent, you're not in harmony with who God is. You are spiritually diseased, and the consequences are just as real but more long-lasting and the consequences of going against the physical laws of physics. But we live in a culture, we get, just got to know this, and Lord help me make this as clear and as straight and as succinct as humanly possible right now, Lord, and even more so because we're dealing not just with humans, but we're dealing with the Holy Spirit. So Lord, you can even outdo that. Praise God. 
Here's the deal. This philosophy of relativism is a replication of the Genesis 3 lie. Permeates everything that we're about. We breathe this air. It pollutes our minds. We've just got to see how it is systematically tailored to get us to minimize, get around sin. Because we become our own measure. We become our own standard. There, is no, there are no absolutes against which our lives are going to be measured. There are four things I want to say about this very, clear, very, very quickly. Number one, it is destructive. It is, a destruct, it is as destructive as driving your 90-mile-an-hour car into a pole. It's as destructive as stepping off the top of a, uh, a, a 19-floor uh, skyscraper. It's destructive. It's destructive because it systematically desensitizes people to the nature of sin. Sin becomes no big deal, you know, if, it, if it's there at all. In fact, we don't use the word anymore. It systematically conditions us to think that we define right and we define wrong, and therefore, if we like it, it must not be wrong. If it feels good, it must not be wrong. If everyone's doing it, it must not be wrong. Or at least it can't be very wrong. People get desensitized. We learn to turn off our conviction devices inside to minimize it, to skirt the issue. It minimizes sin. And because it minimizes sin, it minimizes the need for repentance. If sin's no big deal, then repentance is no big deal. And where there is no sin, there is no repentance. And where there is no repentance, there is no salvation. And where there is no salvation, there is destruction. Amen? Amen. This philosophy, which so permeates our, our culture, is a destructive philosophy. It's accepted, it's, it's, it's uh, seen as just sort of being the academic thing to do, and the academic thing to believe, and if you're really enlightened, you'll, you'll be there. But as a matter of fact, it's destructive. Secondly, it is an utterly incoherent philosophy. The major secular thinkers of our age are preaching it and, and espounding it and writing books on it, but I submit to you that it's utterly incoherent. It's sheer deception. If you examine it, it doesn't make any sense. Consider just this, the word, the phrase, all truth is relative. Think about it. That is an absolute truth claim. All, all truth is relative, which means if it's true that all truth is relative, then the statement all truth is relative cannot be true. So it's a self-refuting position. It's logically contradictory. It doesn't make any sense. I was uh, 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 listening. I, I think I, I mentioned this uh, maybe last week or last year sometime, but it's a good illustration. I want to use it again. About a year ago, I was uh, uh, eavesdropping on a uh, uh, <laughs> conversation that my daughter was having with a friend. Well, she was having it very loudly, so it wasn't, you know, uh, bad eavesdropping. Okay? It was unavoidable. Kind of. Okay, okay, forget that. I repent. I'm reading a book, and I'm listening to this conversation, and apparently the, the issue was this. My daughter, who inherited my gift for shyness, apparently told somebody uh, at school that they were doing something wrong, a, a behavior. I don't know what it was, but she was saying, that's really wrong, and that's going to really hurt you. Maybe she even said, it's, you're, you're going to go to hell. I don't know. But she, she said, you know, that's really a bad thing that you're doing. Now, a different friend was arguing with her on the phone saying, you have no right to tell anybody that what they believe or what they're doing is wrong. That's intolerant, you're being bigoted, you're being narrow. It's, it's just bad, bad, bad to tell someone that what they're doing is wrong, that what they believe is wrong. You shouldn't do that. My daughter was trying to defend herself. And I'm trying to stay out of it as I'm reading this book. But I'm a theology prof, folks, so this is like hurting me bad. So finally, I go over and I just whisper in her ear. I just said, I just, said, just ask him, ask him what, he, what is he doing to you right now? And at first she gave me this kind of a 17-year-old, I wish I didn't have a father look, you know? Like... <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> uh, 
She was, she was, okay. But then the coin dropped in the slot, and all of a sudden she realized, once in a while, at least once in a lifetime, it pays to have a father who's a professor of theology. And this was one of those moments, because she immediately said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. What are you doing to me right now? You're telling me that I'm wrong. And you're telling me that I'm wrong by saying that no one can tell anyone else that they're wrong, so if what you're saying is right, then you're wrong, which means that I'm right. Woo! Slam dunk. The bottom line is that relativism is an incoherent position. Nobody can defend it consistently. No one can live it consistently, and that's the third point. Nobody lives this consistently. And because this permeates our culture so much, you'll really do someone some good if you can show them how their position is really based on, on illogic and it's, it, it's incoherent. So, so be taking notes on this. No one lives it consistently. They can't because it's self-contradictory. Had a professor at, at Princeton. I may have mentioned this before, too. It's a good illustration. I want to use it again. Repetition is the key to learning. This professor was a cultural anthropologist, which, like most professors at Princeton, uh, meant that she was a cultural relativist. There are no rights and wrongs over and above what the culture decides on. Okay? And she taught that and preached it in, in her classes. She was also a very well-known, respected feminist who was one of the first ones in the early 80s to suggest to the United Nations that they ought to impose sanctions on countries based on how well they conform to a minimum level of decency in treatment of women. Okay? We have to hold other nations accountable. She was especially against the practice, the barbaric, ruthless, painful practice of female circumcision. Which is a, I don't even want to describe what they do there, but it's excruciating done to young ladies for no other reason than to empower men over them and to increase their pleasure with them. Feminists tend not to like those kind of things, I've learned. Now here's the thing, she was against this. Some, a lot of African tribes practiced this and she thought it was heinous and we ought to impose sanctions on countries that don't conform to a minimum, minimum level of decency in treatment of women. Who defines minimum? She does. Certainly the African countries don't. Now here's the thing. I think she is right. I think she's got a point. I, I think this, this would be a good practice. But I could do that because I believe that there's a moral law that transcends all cultures, all people at all times, that I can appeal to. We're made in the image of God, and you don't treat people made in the image of God this way. But what on earth is she appealing to? Where is she getting off appealing to this transcultural ethic when she herself says that all ethics are culturally defined? How could a person who believes this even say that Nazi Germany was wrong to exterminate six million people, one million Jewish children under the age of five? If culture defines what is right and what is wrong, there is no higher court of appeal than the culture. So if the Nazis want to exterminate people, you can say, well, I don't, I don't uh, personally prefer that. I like chocolate ice cream. You like vanilla. I don't like uh, exterminating children. You do. You know, we all have, we're, we're different here. We must learn tolerance. But you can't say that it's absolutely wrong. You have no court of appeal to appeal to. But here's the thing. Everybody in their heart of hearts knows that there are absolute rights and wrongs. And sooner or later, on some issue, it will come out. Because there's no other way to think and there's no other way to live. There are moral absolutes. Relativists are only relativistic with regard to certain pet issues that they want to be relative about. Most of them are relativistic when it comes to sexual ethics. Most of them are not relativistic when it comes to the treatment of women or when it comes to global ethics, how, how all cultures should treat our environment or things like that. None of them are relativistic when you take up their parking space. All right? 
All of a sudden, there is a moral absolute here. But see, in the heart of hearts, they know that there are absolutes. But there is a spirit of delusion that causes even brilliant people not to see the inconsistency of the beliefs that they're holding and the inconsistency of the life that they're living. They actually believe, and this is my fourth point, they actually believe, and this permeates academia, and I've spent some time out there, I can tell you reliably, this view permeates the academic institutions. People, students, professors feel enlightened, they feel broad, they feel uh, you know, they, that they have sort of arrived when they hold this position. Oh, you see, we understand. It's been proven, actually, that, that all immoral, immoral ethics, people disagree about these things, kind of things. Different cultures, different upbringings, different genetic dispositions, different ways of, of looking at the world. We must be tolerant. We must accept these. No one can say that anyone else is wrong. Yada, 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 yada. And they believe that they've really arrived. They're, and if you come along and you say, no, I really think that there's a right and a wrong, and it doesn't really depend much what our culture thinks. Why, you're medieval. You're, you're archaic. You're, you're just out and out dumb. Something's wrong with you. Now, I want you to think about this. I, you know, it's true. Born-again Christians are construed as being narrow, narrow people, intolerant people in this day and age. But see, here's the thing. If, 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 if what is your name? Mark. If Mark here is going to, he's on the top of a 19-story building, and he's going to step over, off it. And he says, oh, Greg, by the way, do you think that I will, is it okay for me to step out here? Will I, will I be safe if I step over this building? If I say, well, you know, Mark, uh, these are complicated issues. You know, some people believe that the, the, you know, some people go down, and I'm, I'm told some people can float. It's all a state of mind. It's all a matter of how you're raised, what culture you're in, yada, yada, yada. I'm not being broad-minded. I'm being stupid. Okay, I'm giving him a death sentence because he's going to step out, and the law of gravity does apply to him. And if I don't recognize it, too bad for me and too bad for him, but the law of gravity is going to operate in any case. You're not being broad-minded about things. If I had some great evidence that indicated that he might float, if there's some proof that he might float, well, then I'd be broad-minded to consider it, but there isn't any. In fact, the position is self-contradictory, self-refuting, and you can't live it consistently, which tells me it's a wrong position. There's nothing broad-minded about saying that all truth is relative, there are a lot of different saviors, you can, you know, all roads will lead you home safely. Nothing broad-minded about it. In fact, it is a spirit, I believe, and I'm just talking about it straight. I wouldn't talk this way if I was giving an academic lecture, but I'm talking to a church, right? The body of Christ. I can say it like it is. Here's how it is. Amen. It's a spirit of delusion. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that these people who wanted to exchange the truth of God for a lie. The truth of God is the truth that is unwavering. It does not depend on personal preference, cultural preference, time preference, or anything. It's the truth of God. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. What is the lie? Go back to Genesis 3. The lie that we can define this stuff. We are gods. We decide. We just determine this stuff. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They became corrupt in their thinking. And then the Bible says their foolish heart was darkened. And thinking themselves to be wise, they became fool. Aren't we smart? We have now arrived at this philosophy of moral relativism. We are smart. We are arrived. We are here. We are there. And they're driving their moral Cadillac into a, into a, into a hard pole at 90 miles an hour. They're stepping off of a spiritual skyscraper and they're going to fall flat on their face. Hell can be defined as people who refuse to live in conformity with God's ways. It's a natural consequence of violating the law of God. You choose to go your own way. The Bible says God in the end lets you go your own way. But that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Because you bring destruction upon yourself. Thinking yourself to be wise, you became fools. Here's what the Bible says. See, this philosophy of relativism, it's, it's very much like what happened in, in ancient Judah. We lose the book of God's law. It teaches people how to ignore God's law, how to hide it in the back, back closet and forget it was ever there, where the, where the measure of all things is ourselves. We forget that there's a law. We forget there's a standard outside and above ourselves. 
that our lives are going to be judged by. The Bible tells us that, in fact, there is an absolute. It's the character of God. And the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is that not right? That all of us have fallen and come short of the glory of God. But that doesn't change the glory of God. The way the Bible portrays it, it is this. And this is just so un-American. And maybe you're here this morning and you think I'm mean for talking like this. This isn't meaningness. This is love. This is love. I don't want you to step off of the skyscraper and fall flat on your face. And it's not a loving thing to say, well, it's up to you. No. God tells us what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. And what the Lord tells us is this. Sin is disease. It's destructive. And it doesn't matter what your culture thinks. It doesn't matter what you individually think. What matters is what God thinks. Sin is sin. It doesn't change with time. It doesn't change with place. It doesn't change with, with cultural situation. Not the basic stuff. Adultery is still adultery. I don't care how many lawyers you got putting a spin on it. It's adultery in God's eyes. Amen? And cheating is cheating. I don't care what the culture says about it. Stealing is a stealing. Prejudice is prejudice. I don't care how institutionalized it is in your culture. Greed is greed. I don't care how important it is to the capitalistic system that you're a part of. Wrong priorities are wrong priorities. And God calls his people, calls his people to walk according to a different standard, a different mindset, a different love with different aspirations. It does no good to preach this to people who aren't believers. You, can, you dress them up on the outside, but they're still just as saved as they were. But I'm not preaching right now to unbelievers. I'm preaching to believers. And God is calling us to a different way of life. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. But is this not true? God has done three things to free us from it. He has defeated the devil, which takes off the intensity of sin. The, the monkey's off our back. If you're a believer... The, the, the incurable nature of sin is gone because the devil's off your back. Number two, he's pardoned you. That's his mercy. He's wiped the slate clean, praise God. As far as the east is from the west, he's cast our sins from us. Uh, he's, he's buried them in the sea of his forgive, for forgiveness. Everything that was written against us has been nailed to the cross. He's pardoned us. That's God's mercy. Wipe the slate clean. You turn to him and he says, if that did not happen, folks, we would be eternally set at odds with God. But because of Calvary, because of the cross, the slate is clean. And the third thing he did, he didn't just, he didn't just let us out of prison. He, he got rid of our criminal character by giving us his Holy Spirit. This is God's grace. Grace is his empowering in us. The Bible says, it's a prophecy in the Old Testament, he'll put his law in our hearts. We will have a, in our heart, because of the Holy Spirit, because of the new nature that we have, well, the desire to walk right with God. That's why the Bible says that we're not just believers who receive a pardon. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Amen? New creatures in Christ Jesus. I'm new. I'm brand new. I'm brand new. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I was a carnal sinner and desired nothing more than that. I was at war with God, but now I have peace with God. I was at war with God, but now I'm a child of God. I'm the bride of Christ. I was a sinner, but now God has sanctified me and put his spirit within me. I used to walk my own ways and be Lord of my own life, but now I'm walking his way and making him Lord of my, own, my, my life. And that means that all the old things have passed away. Behold, all, all things are new. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, and so are you if you're a believer. Here's the bottom line, though. Brings us full circle back to the Josiah thing. We still have free will. We still have to choose to walk consistent with what he's purchased for us. We choose to either walk in his way or not. And it can happen, and it has happened in the Church of America, that though he has gotten the devil off of our back, we invite him, the devil, back in our life by obeying him, by obeying the enemy. 
And that gives him a stronghold in, in our life. And though he has pardoned us, we choose to go back to the very stuff that he's forgiven us from. And though he has given us a new nature and empowered us to walk out of sin, we freely, volitionally choose to hang on to some of the sin in our life, stuff we've been set free from. And what the Lord would have us to see is this. We probably can't conceive of how much joy and power and peace and victory we are missing by holding on to that stuff. How God's heart grieves when the people of God, his bride, he washes her, but she keeps on staining herself. Why? It doesn't need to be there. He's died to set you free from it. Why do we keep running our cars into poles when we know the laws of physics and stepping off a building when we know the law of gravity when he set us free to live in conformity with that? And to the degree that we have that in our life, to the degree that we hang on to the stuff, we block God's ability to pour his blessing on us, his joy on us, the Holy Spirit moving in our life. We block, we hinder God's blessing to us individually, but also God's blessing through us to our husband or our wife and our children. They all suffer because of it. And your neighbors suffer because of it. And all the people in your life that you would ever affect suffer because of it. Sin is a grave thing. Why do we hang on to it? God is calling us to rediscover the book as it will. But unlike the children of Israel, the book is in our heart. And you know it already, and it is there if you're a believer. God wants us to reconsecrate ourselves, and we're going to do it right now. Like Josiah did with the children of Israel. There comes a time, it doesn't mean that you're a, a, a vile, vile sinner. You know, it doesn't mean that. Maybe you are. It doesn't mean that you are. But it, does, it just means this. People, people renew their vows, even, even, if they're, uh, even if they're pretty happily married. But it, 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 you, you need to say, how time where you reconsecrate it? Time wears down. There's a second law of thermodynamics that applies to our, our natures. We tend to go downward. And we need to have a time where we look Jesus Christ in the eyes and we make a recommitment, a reconsecration. Oh, what God could do with us if we were sold out and surrendered. Oh, uh, you, oh, there's no limit. There's no ceiling. There's no, there's no restriction on what God could do and wants to do with us as a congregation now. Yes, individually, but as a congregation, if we are, as a collective whole, are sold out and surrender to him. It doesn't mean that you are guaranteeing that you'll never sin again in your life. I can pretty much guarantee that you will. But it does mean this. You're turning from the stuff you're hanging on to. Some people here need to turn from relationships that you know you should not be involved in. Some people here need to turn from addictions that you know you should not have. Some need to turn from fundamental attitudes that you have towards a certain class of people that you know have no business being in a person who's a member of the bride of Christ. Some of you cheat on business deals and God's been bugging you about it for a long time. Today's the day to get rid of that stuff. Get the grime and the junk and the smut out of your life. Some of you have been involved in, in certain mental activities that you know have no place in the body of Christ. This is the time right here, right now, where you make a commitment. You say, I'm going to walk this way. I'm turning from this, and I'm walking this way. Are you willing to do that here this morning? Are you willing to make that commitment to the Lord this morning? To reconsecrate yourself, to make him first with all your heart, all your mind, and to say, Lord, it's my commitment, it's my desire for you to be first in my life. To love the Lord I got with all my heart, all my body, all my soul, and to love my neighbor as, as yourself. It all boils down to that.